We are a citizen organized, a citizen run, a citizen funded initiative. We don't have a single large donor. We're doing this all on our own, almost exclusively by volunteers. We want to start a national dialogue. COVID-19 pandemic has been a unprecedented event as far as Canada, the countries in the world are concerned. The fact that in Canada people are still afraid. It has not been disclosed uh, to the general public the contents of the uh, material. So in that moment, she framed every unvaccinated person, including her guest on the show, as a danger to public safety. What's interesting also is that nobody can name a single real-world vaccine success story where COVID rates went down at a nursing home or a funeral home after the vax rollout. You're in a cancer clinic and you feel abused by everybody because they didn't want to know of you. They wanted to know your mask. They wanted to make personal contact with your mask and that was the horror of it. How did we get to this point? A nation that is afraid to let its people judge the truth and falsehood in an open market is a nation that is afraid of its people. That's still where we are in this nation, Canada, because no government, no authority wants to inquire into its handling or mishandling of the last three years response to COVID-19. Well, welcome everyone who is joining us for this NCI Roundtable. My name is Sean Buckley. I'm a lawyer that volunteers with the National Citizens Inquiry, and I'm very honored and pleased to be with you. For those of you who aren't familiar with the National Citizens Inquiry, as the, uh, the I guess our introduction indicated, we truly are a citizen organized and run group that has marched commissioners across this country for 21 full days of hearings, giving ordinary Canadians a voice. One of the most, um, I guess, compelling parts about what happened as we marched across the country was just experiencing how important it was to share with each other our stories, to hear what each of us had been experiencing and to basically be able to come together and feel strong again and feel healing again and feel permission to speak again. One of the <clears throat> witnesses that we were truly honored to have and come and share with us was Sheila Lewis, who testified at, at day two of our Ottawa hearing. So literally our second last day. And Sheila shared a tremendous story with, with us. So I'll, I'll share with you in a, a moment of what her story is, and we'll play a little bit of that testimony, but I will invite all of you to go to the National Citizens Inquiry website. We've got a separate page for her uh, where you can access her testimony. But I'm very pleased to have as my guest today one of Sheila Lewis's son, Darcy Lewis. For those of you who aren't aware, Sheila passed away on August 23rd. When you watch her entire testimony. Uh, she was anticipating that she would die because of the situation she was in. So we can't obviously can't have her today, but we're so honored, Darcy, to have you come and share with us. So thank you for joining us today. 
at the National Citizens Inquiry. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me today. So for those of you who um, haven't yet seen Sheila's testimony, um, and I'll, I'll have to back up and say that Sheila was under a court order that prevented her from actually stating the organ that she needed. She needed an organ transplant to survive, actually two organs. Um, but she was under a court order, a gag order, that prevented her from sharing the, order, the organs and sharing the doctor's names and the hospital location. And we're going to continue to honor that court order today as we had at um, when Sheila testified. It doesn't mean that we agree with the order, but we're going to honor the court that issued the order. So in sharing her story, Sheila explained to us that she needed an organ to survive. And when you need an organ to survive, to get on the organ transplant list, you actually have to go through a fair amount of testing. It was, as I understand it, Darcy, over a year of testing, like just let alone even the vaccinations, but a year of testing. And they want to know that all your other organs are fine, that you're healthy, basically that you're going to survive the surgery because there's no point giving you an organ transplant if you're going to, not going to be able to survive. And not only is that a waste of, of, you know, for you, but it's a waste of the organ. And so Sheila goes through all this testing and learns that she is a strong candidate for a transplant, that she's extremely healthy, all of her other organs are in good shape. And she's just basically <clears throat> sailing through this testing process. Now this is happening in the province of Alberta. She grew up in Prince Edward Island. She's, she's a grandmother. She's not a young girl. The doctor's office where she would have gotten her childhood vaccinations will long be closed and they cannot find her childhood vaccination records. So as a requirement for her to get the transplant, she has to go through all her childhood vaccinations again, although she had already had them. And that took almost a year, as I understand it, Darcy. Yes, roughly around that time frame, yes. Yeah, and it, it's just, you know, you can't just, get them all at once, they have to space them out. So she yeah. goes and gets her childhood vaccinations a second time. <clears throat> and then COVID-19 is, we're in the midst of that. And the vaccine's been released. And the small group of doctors that have basically control of who's on the organ you know, donor list or recipient list for this hospital, make a decision that it's going to be a condition for people getting organ transplants at that hospital that they have to get the COVID-19 vaccine. And as Sheila explained in her testimony, and this is, this is very early on, so the vaccine's just been released. We all know it's been rushed through. And she asks the doctor, one of the transplant doctors, is it safe? And without hesitation, the doctor says, oh, it's 100% it's safe. And she she questions that. I mean, it's, it's just been released. It's been rushed. There's, there's no data. How can you say that? And so that got her looking into it more. And she does her own research. And she forms the conclusion that she does not want to get this vaccine. But it's a requirement. So they're, they're going to take her off the list. She gets tested by Dr. Stephen Pellick, who runs a lab in British Columbia, for testing people for natural antibodies to COVID-19. She gets her blood tested 
and learns that she has had COVID-19, she has successfully overcome COVID-19, and that she has robust natural immunity. So some people, when they when they they get natural immunity, it can be so strong that they're literally filled with antibodies, and it can be dangerous for those people to get vaccinated. And that's where Sheila was. She had such robust natural immunity <clears throat> that doctors like Dr. Stephen Pellet would was were telling her it would be dangerous for you to get vaccinated. Now, notwithstanding that she had robust natural immunity from COVID-19, they would not put Sheila back on the transplant list. So she started court proceedings. She started proceedings in the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench, as it was then known, to get back onto the transplant list. And she failed in that court. So she appealed to the Alberta Court of Appeal and she failed in that court. When she testified at the National Citizens Inquiry at our second day in Ottawa, <clears throat> she had applied for leave to the Supreme Court of Canada because all three judges in the Alberta Court of Appeal had sided for the doctors. She was in the situation where she had to apply to the Supreme Court of Canada for permission for them to hear the appeal. It's called applying for leave. And so when she testified, she didn't know whether or not the Supreme Court of Canada would agree to hear her case. After she testified, the Supreme Court of Canada decided that they were not going to hear her case. So now those proceedings, and understand this, is, this was life and death for Sheila. When she testified at the National Citizens Inquiry, she basically told us she had months of life left, which turned out to be true without having a transplant. Now, <clears throat> Another lawyer uh, got involved and started civil proceedings, a different, a different way of going about this. And the hospital and doctors actually agreed that she could get back on the transplant list. But one of the conditions of that was that she hadn't been getting testing because she had been off the list for a long period of time. <clears throat> so she was to go and admit herself into the hospital. Now it's clear, and Darcy's gonna share this story with us as we go forward. But it's clear she didn't need to go to the hospital. It's not like she had taken a turn for the worse. She was just going in to get the testing to be back on the transplant list. And within a week of going into the hospital, she had deteriorated and needed to be put on a ventilator and was basically sedated and, and was never conscious again. And so Darcy's here to, to share with us basically her experience from the very beginning and, and more about Sheila and her life. But before we do that, we just um, want to play with you just a couple of minutes of her testimony uh, at the NCI in Ottawa, just so that you can see Sheila, so you can hear her voice, so you can see how she's animated and understand the, the journey that she was going through. There's a lot of people dying and it's not just me. I'm not the only one that was refused to transplant because they chose not to get a vaccine. There's a lot of people in Canada. And I always said I was fighting for them because they deserve to get their transplant just as much as I do. Whether it's, doesn't matter what organ it is. Dear God, there's a lot of people that need help. And I feel for every one of them because I know what I'm going through and they're going through the same damn thing. They need help, they need a lot of prayers. Whatever these doctors are doing, 
you're evil. There's no other word for it, you're evil. To let people die for no reason. I always thought a doctor took their oath, the Hippocratic oath, do no harm. Well, there's an awful lot of harms going on. And I'm gonna plead with you, please. Please, for the love of God, give people their transplants. They're not asking for anything else. They just want the gift of life. If it's there and it's possible, please give it. I don't want to die. God help me. I'm so sorry. Don't don't be sorry. Huh? <sighs> One thing I said I wasn't going to do was this when I come on. But I guess when you talk about it, <sighs> motions unfortunately get in the way. So, Darcy, I, I expect that you've seen your mother's testimony at the National Citizens Inquiry. Yes, I did, yeah. Was, was there anything in the, the very brief explanation that I gave of, of kind of, you know, what she shared with us that, that you, we should add, or did I get most of it correct? No, you pretty much nailed everything on the head there with that, yeah. Okay, so I, I, I want to talk about you a little bit first. Is um, so your mother, Sheila, had three boys, no girls, curiously. And uh, yes, you're, yeah. the third, you're the third oldest son. And second. you're 33. Oh, second. Well, I'm sorry. And I, I knew that I was going the other way. So um, no, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you're you're 36 years of age. And yep. you've had a, a range of jobs right now, as I understand it, you are finishing a course to become a national construction safety officer. And you basically, I think even have an exam next week on that. Yes. Yes. I have an exam on Wednesday, the 13th for that. Yep. Yeah. But you've had a, a lot of other jobs. So you've, you've been putting weld heads on rig pads. You've done road construction. You've done scaffolding primarily in the oil patch and, and carpentry and, and um, <clears throat> working at Suncor mines in, in Fort McCabe basically done a whole raft of things. But my understanding also is, is that you made a decision this last March, so March of 2023, basically to stop working to care for your mother. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, there was, uh, I had originally, when I, I was up in uh, Suncor Mines, working for Thompson's as a heavy equipment operator, driving triple sevens, um, right up until um, the 27th. I had asked for a layoff to move back up to Grand Prairie from Edmonton to uh, be closer to mom to help her with anything. And then I had found a job and then I stayed up here living with her, helping her out while I was working. And then in March, yes, yeah, I made the decision to stay home full time to help her out after that because uh, she was definitely struggling at home. Yep. Right, right. So, in, so your mother's living up in Grand Prairie. And for those of you that don't know Alberta, 
Like, what is that, about a four-hour drive from Edmonton? Four and a half hours, give or take, yeah, depending yeah. on, yeah, how fast you go. Right, right. So, so you end up moving uh, there basically at the end of December so that you're closer and can start helping. And then um, by the time you're in March, you just make a decision that, no, you, you basically should be with your mom full time. Yes, yeah, she was... Um... Some of it had to do with also what part made that decision was we had a couple of power outages here in Grand Prairie or one specifically, sorry. And uh, luckily I had been not too far away and I was able to bring a generating light tower to the house to supply power to her machines so she could continue receiving oxygen until the power had come back on. And after that, that's when the decision was made shortly after that to come back in case something like that but happens again because if nobody's home and that had happened again she would not have been able to put power back to her uh, oxygen supply to be able to continue breathing right right so just so i i understand it. and then people who saw the video would see that that your mom had a, a tube going to her nose and that was to give her oxygen yes. and as i understand it you guys had two machines at home that would actually generate the oxygen am i right about that yes that's correct and there was also a uh there was also a little fundraiser that happened to um get a third one for her because the ones that we that were supplied to us um were very well used oh Um, both before her and during her because they ran 24 7 one of them had um one of them had uh, on the little hour gauge there it was like something, it's like forty-two thousand hours on it. So they were they were well used before and during the time that my mother had them. So we we had got another one. Um, there was kind people out there, generous enough to help out. There was uh, fourteen hundred dollars, and we bought one. Um, and it was fresh, brand new, never used until mom used it. Um, and we also had some tanks um if she needed to travel but unfortunately she wasn't able to get out of the house to go to doctor's appointments and such or anything um if any of them did happen because uh, she wasn't able to sustain herself on uh just tanks so it was just machines that were giving her oxygen right okay now <clears throat> yeah she she well i guess she talked about her need to be on on oxygen now what um she also talked during her testimony literally about you know you and and her other sons helping her out and um, and she explained that you know she couldn't do things like cooking anymore and cleaning that that basically she had reached the point where she couldn't do that can you tell us about that the types of things that that you ended up being involved with the kind of things that what sorry well the types of things that you helped her out with oh okay so specifically for me so we all did our own little parts uh I was the surface cleaner, getting everything ready, changing tanks out, refilling tanks, um, taking care of uh, laundry, uh, cleaning, doing dishes, cooking what I could cook. Um, some of it with her instruction, because I'm not the greatest at that. Um, and uh, 
my big routine every day was basically making sure she took her medications when she was supposed to take them. Uh, some of them I had to mix. Some of them I just had to give them to her. And sometimes I just had a reminder, but she was usually on it pretty good. I just helped. My biggest part was just anything that she had to get up and mix was my biggest part there. Um, one of my other brothers, he was more the deep cleaner. So anything that really needed to be deep cleaned, you know, uh, he took care of that. And then uh, my youngest brother, he took care of pretty much any running around to the groceries and stuff like that um, and would bring them back. So we all played our own little roles. Um, that was mine. It was taking care of the day-to-day -day things and doing the clean, doing the basic cleaning and such like that. Right. Well, and it, I have to tell you that I was touched at how your mother described her boys. And you, you can tell from her testimony that she was very, very proud of you. What, what type of person was your mother? Our, our experience with her was just, you know, interacting with her before she testified and then her testifying. Can you share with us what type of personality she was? She truly was a very kind person. It was just, I think, I think the biggest part of it was where you're raised, the East Coast. You know, Canada's known for their kindness, but the East Coast is, you know, a little bit more kind and more uh, uh, community friendly. Um, she was also uh very adamant about us growing up where she had to or she felt like she had to do everything that she could to uh give us everything that we needed in life growing up um and didn't matter what it was and she she made it happen really she would work multiple jobs she would take extra shifts um and she always she always made sure that we were well taken care of a lot of times she went without so we could we could have um yeah, and so, uh but she was i'm go sorry ahead. i didn't catch you up no that's okay go ahead well it's just when when you and i were having a conversation earlier is is um i got the impression you know the family wasn't well off financially and, but your mother literally would do whatever work was necessary to make sure that her four boys had what they needed yes oh yeah she would she worked uh uh, 12 hour days, 10 to 12 hour days at one job. And then she'd work sometimes, not all the time, but she'd work a couple hours somewhere else just to pull in some extra cash where she could. She was very, uh, very adamant about making sure that there was a roof over her head. We had good food that she could afford. Um, and, uh, but we didn't have a lot growing up, but she, she worked very, very hard to make sure that she could do what she could to, uh, make sure that we had what we needed and then some. Yeah, yeah and, it, and it, in fact, it's really interesting, and it, it was touching me when you were explaining it, that, that literally one consistent trait about your mother is that she would do whatever was necessary to make sure that you guys had what you needed, or even, you know, if you wanted something, like so Christmas was coming up or whatever, she would just take other jobs and everything to make sure that you guys were taken care of. I got that right. Yes. Right? Yeah, and there was even one time where she put a uh, um, she put a loan against her vehicle to make sure that we could have Christmas one year, and um, and help out uh, whoever needed the help at the time. One of my brothers needed a hand, and um, she took out a loan against the, her vehicle to make sure that Christmas happened, and then he was he was taken care of with with his uh, struggle. Mm -hmm. Right, it centers. Stood. He was he was just at one of those low times that we sometimes experience where you needed a little extra help. 
So yes, even yeah. though your mother wasn't well off, she would try and figure out ways to make sure yeah. that I think she referred to you guys as her boys were taking care yeah. of Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, she was always, uh, she always made sure of that. Yeah. Okay. So, and your your mother, because uh, I'd asked you, you know, like, well, you know, what were her passions in that? And, it, and it's curious because you had shared with me that actually she really wanted to travel, but just never had the means to do that. Yes. Yeah. She, uh, she was, uh, she was very happy go lucky, but then she, she had this, um, taste for adventure that she never really got. And part of that adventure was to travel. Um, but taking care of us and her going without traveling and such was more important to her than actually traveling. So, um, she never really had the chance and more when she did more have the chance, unfortunately, that's when she became ill. So, yeah, now let's let's talk about her getting ill. My understanding is, is um, your mother actually even tried to shield you and and your brothers from what was going on. So you you learned in 2019 that there was a problem, but but it started earlier, didn't it? Can you share with us a little bit about that? I'd found out there after she had passed that there was about a year, give or take, um, where um, she had known that something was wrong beforehand. She just didn't know what exactly until she was actually diagnosed. And, uh, but it was roughly a year or so before that she had known that there was something wrong. Um, right. And she yeah. wouldn't, she wouldn't tell you guys. It was only when she was going to have to get an oxygen system and you can't hide the problem anymore that you found. Yes, out. that's that correct. Right? And yes, is that yeah. difficult with your mother? Cause I interpret that as a, she's, actually not wanting to worry yeah she she always um she was always she always shared things with us of course we always uh, we were always very close with mom uh, so we had a we always had a really good open relationship and dialogue but uh, there was some things like that where she would never she would just kind of internalize that and talk to one of her best friends or something like that and you know make sure that they never told us or we never got wind of it because she always tried to protect us from any of that because she didn't want us to worry about it because we had our own lives to live and she always just wanted us to do good and not have to hold ourselves back to worry about her so yeah that happened a few times yeah well it, it's actually quite an endearing trait so it's just the more we talked about your mother i just got the impression that everything was geared to you know the boys and so she didn't want she didn't want to worry you guys um what when so 2019 rolls along and, you know, she can't hide it anymore because now she's getting this, I guess, the first oxygen machine. Um, what did you observe in her condition? Because my understanding is, is it basically stabilized. She couldn't do a whole bunch of things, but, but it wasn't getting better and it wasn't getting worse. Can you share with us kind of, you know, what you observed once you learned that she was sick? So when she had first got the uh, supplied oxygen machine to her, uh, she was just at the very beginning stages of it, I guess. It, uh, um, uh, she she still did everything. She had her she had her troubles, of course. You know, she she had to learn to pace herself, uh, which was something that she struggled with because that wasn't her. She always tried to pull through it, but uh, um, 
she, I think her biggest problem was that she was just tethered to the machine. She only had so much distance to go. I think that was part of her bigger frustrations. But uh, um, yeah, she uh, it was just adjusting to it. I think was her biggest, her hardest uh, thing to overcome was just adjusting that she she had to stay within a certain radius um, and pull the machine around. But then there was also uh, some times there it was in the middle of the summer i believe if i'm not mistaken it was like early fall middle of the summer anyway she had um she had taken like a some sort of spell anyways uh it's nice good uh room temperature in the house and then she would just go from hot to cold hot to cold and i remember she just threw herself in the bathtub and she's just like darcy can you turn on the hot water please just make it as hot as you can i'm freezing over here and i don't know what that was but uh, uh, and then she would just stay there and then help her get out and wrap her. And then all of a sudden she wanted to go in the bedroom and we had like blankets like this, you know, just so many blankets thrown on her just to help keep her warm. I don't know what it was. And then a couple minutes later, she'd be sweating and then she'd be really hot. And so it just, it was a, it was a rough go with that one, but, uh, you know, are you okay? Yeah, so so the machine, basically she's tethered to the machine, so that would prevent her from going up and down stairs? Uh, it, we, we had also got a little uh, portable one. Um, it didn't put out as much as she needed, but we made it work at first. She kind of pulled through it um, for some appointments, but stairs were her worst enemy because it takes a lot more exert it exerts the body more to go up and down stairs or up the stairs anyways so um yeah she she struggled with the stairs thing it would take a uh you know if we live 10 minutes from uh from somewhere where we had to be for an appointment when uh, during the earlier stages when she could get out um we'd have to leave like 45 minutes later just to help her up the stairs uh because it was take a couple steps take a break take a couple steps take a break um so we we had to adjust to doing certain things slower and differently um but uh yeah we were really confined to both a, a the machine the tethering to the machine and b what uh what she could really do um without causing herself any more pain or harm now I, my, my understanding is this is i mean even um you know you moving in your mother didn't ask you to do that and really she wasn't asking for help she just no, no, that was the decision I had made all on my own. Um, she was, I remember her telling me one day she was thankful that I had done it because she did need the help, but she said she'd never asked me. She was too proud for that. Um, she would always, uh, she struggled in silence, uh, so she would never worry us. Uh, that was something she was pretty good at doing. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm getting that impression right now to not telling you guys that she was sick until she had to because of the machine. Now, once um, once you learned that and and she got on the transplant list, my understanding is is you were heavily involved with taking her to the doctors and and so you you interacted with the medical team when she was going through this process to get ready for the transplant. Can you talk about that a little bit? What that was like and what you experienced. Uh, when we first became, when we first uh, was talking to the transplant team, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, uh, 
I had taken her to all of her appointments for that. I was in the room uh, for some of the testing where uh, she wasn't exposed in any sort of way during the testing. So all the stuff that was fine there, I was in the room for that. Um, I got to meet some of the transplant team um, and talk to a lot of the people that were in that process. Uh, and there was uh, one time where I was at uh, the hospital when she was getting her Oh, I forget what it was. Uh, she was getting her heart checked out to see. This was during the process to check the organs, other organs, to see if all their other organs were uh, well and functioning. And um, specifically, the one I remember was sit, standing next to her in the bed after she had gotten her, or during the time I sorry, she was getting her heart checked out. And that's where they they put a big tube down your your neck, and then they put one up your arm, and. Um, that uh, stayed there during that process uh, not while she was they were putting it in but while they were while they had it in her and she was just taking the time to go through that process it was in there for a little bit um yeah i took her to all her appointments any anything that she needed to get done that was that was pretty much me right right now um you you found out you you've already told us one thing you found out some things um after she died so one of them was is that she had um you know been sick for longer than she had let on um you'd also had an experience she was basically trying to hide from you the grief that she was going through can you tell us about an experience you had where you you basically found her in the bathroom crying yeah so there was uh, one day, I forget when it was now. It wasn't too long. I think it was last year. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think it was last year. Anyway, she uh, um, just happened to be home and she, uh, uh, I heard some uh, noise going on in the washroom and I knocked on the door to check to make sure everything was okay. Um, and she'd asked me not to come in and I can open the door anyways. And she was, she was sitting on the toilet crying. Um, just letting out some emotion, I guess. I don't really know what exactly she was crying over, to be honest. But uh, she was sitting on the toilet crying, and she told me, or she got mad at me for opening the door because she didn't want me to see her like that. Um, and I guess, I don't know how many times that has happened, to be honest with you, but I guess it was something that she did. So I caught her a couple of times after that because then I started listening in more when she went to the bathroom to uh, see, just to see if she was crying or listening and ask her if she needed anything or not. Um, and during the time that I had stayed home full time with her, there was also things I found out afterwards that um, uh, part of the process of going to bed was to always take an oxygen tank with her as a booster. Um, to was when she was exerting energy, energy she needed more than the two machines. So we had refillable tanks, and I'd always change those for her. And I used to help her take them, take it to the bedroom, and then take it back out when she got up in the morning. And I guess one morning she didn't want to wake me up and she had crawled to the uh, kitchen from the bedroom to grab an oxygen tank for herself because she didn't want to wake me up because it was a little bit earlier than uh, whatever. But um, that's something she didn't tell me either. But uh, I found that out elsewhere that she had told to somebody else. But, you know. Yeah, she didn't. She didn't want you you worrying about her, did she? Yeah, she just um, she she used to get upset with herself because she always seen herself as a burden. Um, 
and she didn't want us to have to uh, waste any of our life helping her. She wanted us around, but she didn't want to worry us because she, she knew we had our own lives to live. However, uh, uh, yeah, she just didn't want us to, to worry about her too much because then we'd stop doing what we're doing in our life to come help her. But she was the priority, at least to me anyways. Yeah. So that that pattern keeps coming out. What is like is this as this progressed, what was the hardest part for you? Before the hospital, before she got uh, put in the hospital there. Um, honestly, I think it was just sitting back and observing just how she, you know, uh, how she'd be after either A, an interview or B, any of the court hearings. Uh, the first ones weren't so bad. Uh, when the course first started, um, we pretty much already knew what to expect there by the end of it. But the the appeal kind of came to a shock or as a shock to us, and then the uh, the um, the uh, Supreme Court uh, their decision came to a shock to us as well, especially her, um, especially the fact that they had not want to hear they didn't want to hear mom's case, and that they were also siding with the opposing counsel that uh, they wanted her to pay the opposing counsel's um, fees. So that, that, that definitely came as a blow, but just watching her go through that. Um, and there's really nothing I could do about it. Uh, I could talk to her and cheer up for a minute, but ultimately there was nothing really I could do. I think that was, that was the hardest part pre pre hospital. Um, yeah. Now I'm just going to slow this down a little bit for people that, that don't know the story. So, um, so Sheila's taken off, the, the transplant list. So she starts the action in the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench. And basically to get that order reversed so she can get back on the list. Now you were sharing with us that actually she wasn't she wasn't thinking after the argument that she was gonna win that case. So she wasn't that surprised about that. Can you tell us basically what happened with that? Like why she wasn't optimistic at that first level? Oh I guess by the end of it from what I can recall was just that she, um, she, somewhere during the mid to late part of the first court hearings was, uh, she had realized that, um, that they weren't really there. The judge, she believed that wasn't going to rule in her favor, um, just by how things were going. And, um, from what I could tell, there was a lot of things that seemed fair. Um, but then there were some unfair things uh, that had happened as well, especially the, um, oh, wait, now. Yeah, it was the first court hearing, I believe. That's when they put the gag order on her, that she couldn't talk about anything about it. Um, I didn't see how that was right, to be honest. Um, and, uh, but by the end of it, I'm not sure if it was just, well, she was in it, to be honest with you, so she could get the feel. But there was also times where they didn't even want her to turn on her camera. So nobody could see her. They could just hear her. Uh, why that decision was made. I don't oh, know. Right. This was during COVID, so it would all be virtual court. Yes. Yeah. Well, and plus she couldn't get out of the house at the time. That's when she was, she physically couldn't get out of the house to go anywhere. So between that and the start of COVID, yeah. Right. 
What about at the Alberta Court of Appeal level? Because my understanding is that she was really hopeful that the Alberta Court of Appeal would rule in her favor and she would get back on the transplant list. Yeah, she had felt like everything was going really good on that case. From my understanding, I don't, uh, um, be honest with you, I, I, I don't know, it's hard for me to remember. Some of it I wasn't there for. Um, and other parts, there's a lot of days they just kind of all seemed one in retrospect. Um, but I just remember she was really shocked that uh, that they denied her. And that was kind of her last hope, too, up till the uh, Supreme Court. And after uh, she was devastated when the appeal when the the appeal didn't go through, because then that's when they had taken her completely off of the list. Um, so then there was no chance at all. But uh, when she uh, applied to the uh, Supreme Court of Canada, she was put back on the list again, um, but um, status zero, which basically means you're there, but you're way over there. Nobody's really looking at you. Um, status two, from my understanding, is where you're more severe. You're at more of the top of the list. And she was put all the way down at uh, zero. Um, just to say she was on there and if, you know, however many people needed the organ that she needed, didn't need it, then it would go to her. But from my, that's my understanding of it anyways. But, uh, and then when the Supreme Court didn't want to take the case and she was completely taken off uh, altogether then. Right. So, so, so when the Supreme Court, because that, that's the last avenue of appeal. They they decided they wouldn't even hear the appeal. How, how did your mother deal with that? Because that basically meant, um, at least she would have thought at the time, that that was the last legal avenue for her to get you know, back on the list. She thought with the precedent of, and the nature, I guess, of the situation with her uh, hearing that she, she, she thought that she had a chance a really good chance she knew she understood that um the supreme court doesn't take all things they just kind of take the more important things and so she thought she had a really good chance to um have her case be heard because of the severity of it but then when we were or sorry when she was denied that um yeah she was devastated and there was a lot of a lot of questions of why um and there was a whole bunch of other things i won't get into on that one but yeah she was she was floored um, we all were really, but she, she obviously took it harder than we did because it mattered more to her because it was her life that was at risk. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting from a legal perspective because, you know, one of the most fundamental rights we have is section seven of our charter rights and freedoms, which is, you know, everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of the person and the right not to be deprived thereof, except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. Now, that only applies to government, but it, it does apply to government-funded doctors making policy decisions in hospitals supported by government. So, um, you know, there's always two sides and different considerations, and, and courts make can make decisions. I mean, by definition, one side's unhappy with every decision, right? Like, we, we can disagree and view things differently. Um, but the one thing that I find troubling is, is but when your very life on the decision, like 
it's not if or but. This is like somebody's life depends on it. If ever there's a situation where, you know, let's look at this anew, despite the fact it's been looking at the lower levels, um, I would think that courts would be um, bending over backwards to, you know, have a second look. So how did, I mean, how did you feel about that? That basically our highest court in the land you know, wouldn't even have a look at it. Uh, I was quite upset because uh, I thought it. I thought that. Well, I mean, biased opinion, of course, but I thought it was pretty important that her case be heard because that doesn't, uh, uh, from my understanding, how depending on how things went, uh, it wouldn't just be her life on the line; it would be other people's as well, because uh, it would kind of dictate where things went afterwards for the rest of Canada. Uh, so my understanding was it was pretty important, but apparently it wasn't important enough. Right, right. It's this principle of, you know, when should the court step in and basically override decisions from a panel of doctors? Yeah. So um, now something did happen, though, from the legal front. So and one thing it, it strikes me about your mother is that she doesn't give up easily. And she she kind of found another legal route to, to go about this. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how, how or even when that happened uh, after the Supreme Court had denied her hearing or her day in court, I guess. Um, but uh, uh, there was a gentleman uh, who took on mom's case and uh, I guess did good, at least to the point where um, they wanted to settle. Uh, and uh, when that settlement came in, whatever was done and agreed upon, that's when she had uh, part of the agreement was for her to go back to the hospital to get retested and catch back up on the testing she had missed during the time that uh, they had stopped uh, seeing her and communicating with her because of the court hearings from before. Um, so it, there was uh, it was hopeful. Uh, nope. uh, go ahead. Well, I'm just. I just realized that I forgot to follow up on something before we get to this part. When you were talking about the Supreme Court of Canada the first time, you had mentioned that the Supreme Court of Canada actually, um, you know, had found that she needs to pay the legal fees of the Crown's lawyer. So, and you, your mother was not of well means. Am I correct about that? Oh, that's correct. Yeah, that and, is correct. We were, we had a roof over our head and we lived we lived okay uh, during up till that period we lived we lived okay we were doing okay for ourselves but uh yeah definitely not well off enough to afford anything like that not even close right and so your mother couldn't afford legal fees so it was actually the justice center for constitutional freedom that had stepped in at no charge to help her along this process yes that's correct okay so, and, and hats off to them and, and groups like that depend on donations. So it's an example of how supporting a group like that can help. So your mother basically got legal representation all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada because she, you know, by Justice Center, but then she's expected to pay the legal fees for the government lawyers. Is that what you're telling us? Yeah, I'm not sure what the dollar figure was, but apparently it wasn't cheap. Right. And would it have been possible for your mother to pay that? Oh, goodness, no. Not even close. Uh, 
at least not in our own not even close right so do, do you know well, is that a debt debt to her estate have you guys figured that out yet i'm sorry what was the question well i'm just wondering if if those court costs to pay the government lawyers for the you know the court costs because she lost in court if, is that going to be a debt that the that her estate has to pay? No, part of the agreement that the next lawyer had made after that decision was uh, to clear that, and um, it was agreed upon that she didn't have to pay that. I think, I think, I don't know. I guess it's hard to say really, because then I, you start you start um, making assumptions of things that might not be there. But uh, our thought was that. Somebody had made the decision somewhere to tell her that she had to pay the fees to scare her because uh, I guess something of the opposing counsel had mentioned was that uh, she just wouldn't stop. I mean, why would you? Why would you stop fighting for your life? It makes no sense to me. Anybody that stops fighting for their life, that's got to be something. But um, we thought it was a scare tactic, more or less, to just say, hey. If you don't stop now you got to pay all this money that you know you could never afford um part of the part of that too was um 2019 uh the later half of 2019 if not the early early 2020 one or the other um she had no more income she wasn't able to work anymore so she hadn't made money in two three years at that point right so how how are you supposed to say I don't know. I think there was four lawyers, if I'm not mistaken, on the other side. So we'll just say they're $5,000 a piece for the whole thing. I know that's quite low, but we'll just say 5000 each. That's $20,000 right there. How do you pay $20,000 when you haven't worked in years? Right, plus your expert witness piece. So interesting. Yeah. Now, now this other lawyer comes in, and, and you don't want to name this other lawyer, but... Um, <clears throat> An agreement is made. Now, my understanding is is that is that your mother Sheila was not supposed to share what this agreement was. Yes, nothing was to be said about the agreement at all. Um, uh, all the previous terms of the gag order had still been in effect, plus whatever else had happened. Uh, the only thing I know is that once the agreement was made, that she didn't have to pay the fees that the Supreme Court of Canada had said she should pay or must pay and um that she was able to go back and get retested for all the tests that she had missed during the time that she was at court with or for the um, the original court and the appeal right so she actually got back on the transplant list am i right about that yes that is part of the that was part of the deal that was made that she was also put back on the transplant list during this uh, time of getting retested and such and then determining or based on her going through all the tests again and such um if she was still a candidate for a good candidate for that then she would still stay on if not she'd be taken off because she couldn't meet the requirements um right. mm -hmm. and i just want to make sure that people understand so your mother had been taken off of the list and even when she hadn't been fully taken off the list they had moved her down from a two which is you know you're just about ready to get the transplant just any day it comes in to zero where there's a whole bunch of people in front of you so you're really likely so she wasn't being tested anymore to ensure that she was still a good candidate is that what you're talking about yes um so if i'm not mistaken 
during all the court proceedings right up until the end of uh right up till the end of the appeal she was still apparently on status two so they were supposed to still be looking for the organ that she needed during this time um apparently none came in um and then after the end of the appeal case she was completely taken off and then when um she uh, ended up taking her case to the supreme court of canada then she was put on zero that's my understanding of how everything went uh sorry for the seagulls no um, no actually it's actually it's a little charming my understanding is is you're up in grand prairie today yes yes like um i was gonna do this uh interview back at home in edmonton uh, but there's some things I needed to take care of. So I came up here and the uh, house is a little bit of a mess right now going through everything, of course. So I came to the park. Yeah, no, no, we, we do it live. <laughs> we do it live at the NC. I right, know um, we're going to get, we're getting to a pretty important part of, you know, what you have to share with us tonight, because so, so your mother, because of this other lawyer comes in and agreement is made and she's put back on the list, but she has to get her testing up to date. And to do that, the doctors of the transplant team actually want to admit her to the hospital for testing. Am I right about that? That's correct, yes. So it's not that she hit her, her condition had deteriorated and she had to go to the hospital. That's my understanding of everything, yes. I right. could be missing some details somewhere, but that's ultimately my understanding of what what had happened okay but you're living with her <laughs> you're you're taking care of her um am i right that basically for a year before she goes in the hospital because she goes into the hospital on july 20th of this year so for you know the year preceding july 20th um you're not seeing any change in her and you you'd been her full-time caregiver you had stopped working in march and you had moved mm -hmm. in in December with her. Um, did you see any change from when you moved into her in December to July 20th that would warrant her needing to go to the hospital all of a sudden on July 20th? No. I mean, of course, with uh, what was wrong with her, you know, of course, it progresses. But she was still able to, with, with great difficulty, of course, um, she was still able to walk around the house. She was still able to get around on her own. She didn't need a wheelchair. Um, we had one just in case, but she didn't need any assistance from anything. She just had to pace herself and go slow. But she was otherwise fine. She would. She was still able to cook to a certain degree, um, but any kind of cooking or anything that had to bend over or you know stir a lot or whatever, I would take care of, or somebody else would at least to uh, help there. She couldn't do that for long periods of time. But yeah, she was still able to get around like anybody else. Uh, like uh, with the NCI, she was still able to talk to people, of course, as you could tell. Um, mm -hmm. She was still able to have conversations. We could sit at the table and play cards. We could sit at the table and have meals, whatever and whatnot. So yeah, no, but no need to go to the hospital that I was aware of. Right, and I just want, and people who understand why I'm circling around and, and clarifying this is so, so it's not like all of a sudden she took a turn for the worst and went to the hospital on July 20th. It was 100% because, as part of the agreement, the doctors wanted her to admit herself to the hospital to get testing done to see if she's still a good candidate. That's my understanding of it, yes. Yeah. Okay. The specifics, 
but yeah. Yeah, so we're gonna pull up. You've shared with us a picture you took of your mother day one at the hospital. So she's just going in for testing. It's, she's not in a health crisis, July 20th, 2023. So yep. this is a picture you took of your mother at the hospital on July 20th, 2023. Yeah, she had asked me to uh, take a picture of her um, while she was smiling um, before she went in so she could, or before she was like fully in there to, uh, this is just shortly after we had got there. Um, uh, she wanted a picture to send to some of her friends. Um, say hi. Yeah, because your mother was actually excited to be there because now she's back on the list and being taken seriously as a candidate to get a transplant. Taken seriously is questionable, but uh, at least giving the at least telling you you have a chance because you're back on the list for sure. Yeah, I can agree with that. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, this was, but this was a positive admission to the hospital. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was what it was supposed to be intended as. Yeah. No. And when I'm looking at this picture and it's funny, your mother just had beautiful eyes and uh, she looks, she really looks the same as she, she did when she testified at the NCI, except instead of the breathing tube, they, they're using a, she's at the hospital. So they're using an oxygen mask. Yes. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, but so so it's nothing changed except they put a mask on her instead of the tube that she was using when she went into the hospital. That's correct, and that was to um, uh, I could be wrong on this, but uh, from my understanding of it, is with the nasal tube, it blows in, but anything that you're not inhaling gets pushed back out the nose. Of course, uh, this here would trap that air, so you can just always have more air. And then, of course, the bag is just in case you need to get a quick boost. But yeah, yeah. Otherwise, yeah. she was that we did this at home sometimes, so it was nothing out of the ordinary for us. Yeah. So when you're taking this picture, you've got no concern that all of that, you know, in the next few days, your mother's going to take a really bad turn for the worst. That's correct. Yeah, that was not. That was definitely not part of the plan. That was not something we had foreseen coming. Okay, because my understanding, so this is July 20th, a week later on July 27th, she's put on a ventilator and sedated. It was the 26th or 27th. No, no, actually, I have the picture I have on the phone actually was the 25th. So I was mistaken about the date uh, when she got put on ventilation. So was yeah, it, it was the, the 25th, 25th she was put on 20 ventilation or the 26th? 25th, yes, 25th. Okay, so literally five days after this picture is taken, your mother, who, you know, had just been doing the same as before and seems the same in this picture, within five days of being admitted to the hospital, all of a sudden is in such a health crisis, she needs to be put on a ventilator. Am I right? Correct. Sorry, I was just double checking my dates, looking out where the, when the photos were taken. Yes, that's correct. So it was the 20th um, and then the 25th is when she got put on ventilation. Okay, so now you took a picture of her on the 25th. So, so um, we'll pull that picture up. Uh, this one was on the 24th. This was less than 24 hours before she okay, got put on so ventilation. This, this is the day before she's put on ventilation. Yes. So, so she's. She obviously seems alert because she's looking at her phone. I assume she's texting people. Yes. Yeah, she and was uh, um, 
yeah, just the same as always. Maybe, maybe a little tired. I can't remember if she had just woken up or if she'd been up for a while. I'm not exactly sure. But yeah, during the t- around the time this picture was taken, she was still outside of just being in the bed 24/7 at the hospital. Um, she was just like she always had been. Right. So, she, and I see now they've got like the nasal tube instead of the mask that we saw in the first picture. Yes. And so she'd be talking to you. You'd be visiting with her. You guys would be having normal conversations. Yes. Yep. I would go in um, around six o'clock in the morning, give or take. Um, and I'd stay for 12 to 14 hours with her every day. And then I'd go back home and get my rest, of course. Uh, but yeah, 12, 14 hours a day, I was engaging with her in conversation and uh, dealing with doctors and such. Yeah. Right. So, so on this day, July 24th, when you took this picture, you basically spent the entire day with your mom. Yes. And talking, visiting, she's all there mentally, she's visiting with you, she's just having to sit there because the doctors want her in the hospital for testing. Correct. Okay. She's not complaining to you about anything? Uh, she she had some complaints, um, but nothing, nothing that was really of um, life-threatening concern. Right. Mm. Yeah. And then again, you took a picture. So she's just texting someone. Now, the next day she's put on a ventilator. Can you tell us how that came about? So they were concerned um, about her blood oxygen level and some of her other other vitals. Um, And they wanted her to don a CPAP mask. that's what they call it, what the technical name is, I'm not sure. But basically, uh, like the first picture, you have a mask on her face, except this one is like strictly strapped to your face and put in tight. So there's no air escaping at all. Um, and it helps force air into the body to help you breathe. Um, they wanted her on that. Uh, so she had tried that. It was very uncomfortable, scary. She couldn't talk. Um, so she had stayed on it, I believe, the first day which if I'm not mistaken was the 23rd um, for like an hour and then tried it after I had left again for a few hours, I think it was. Uh, and then on the 24th, she just, she just couldn't take it. She, she said it was too hard to breathe. She was anxious, scared. Um, so she didn't want the CPAP anymore. And that was when they had told us that if she can't take the CPAP, uh, anymore than the only other option to us is ventilation. Um, and did I said, okay. To, did your mother want to go on, on the ventilator? No, she was mortified of that. She's been terrified of that thing for years. Um, uh, just with everything that she had either heard online, seen online, talked to other people about, uh, whatever the case might have been, uh, she was mortified of that thing. Because uh, I remember her telling me one day that she goes, uh, I'll never have I'll, I'll never I'll never be put on ventilation because I know I won't come back. That's, that's what she told me. Actually, that's what right. she told all the boys. Right. And did you hear her tell the doctors then? Uh, no, I've never heard her tell the doctors that. When that had come up, um, when that had come up, we had talked about it. Uh, fast forward to the next day. Uh, this is when things got juicy, I guess. Um, they had came to us, if I'm not mistaken, around noon-ish, give or take, shortly before or after, 
Um, and they told her again that she needs to she needs to wear the the CPAP mask. Uh, if not, within the next 24 hours or less, depending on how she how stable she is, um, she'll be put on ventilation. Um, so I went out and made some phone calls to family and such, and I said, okay, this is what's happening. Um, we have less apparently we have apparently have less than 24 hours before they put her on ventilation. So if you want to come say hello to her, I said now is your chance. So my family had started coming down and uh, not even within an hour after they had started coming down, um, she was already on the ventilator. Um, we had not, from my resolution, we had not agreed to the ventilation as of yet. Uh, I went out to make my phone calls and before like half hour, 40 minutes, give or take somewhere around that timeline, um, I had went go back in and she had already been um, semi sedated with the ventilator in her mouth. Um, and I don't know if she agreed to it or not, because when I left, she had looked at me with the most terrified look on her face. Never said yes. Never said no. Just this eye locked me with she looked terrified. She really did. Um, and then half hour 40 minutes later give or take um she's she's on the ventilation tube and that's when i uh, uh go away uh that's when i had um i'm quite upset a little bit because uh she wasn't fully sedated um she her eyes were still open and she was still moving around a bit um at just after they had put the tube in her mouth and uh, I had to hold her hands down because she was trying to grab for the tube and there was no other. Darcy, we're just going to sit tight for a second. You've, you've frozen. Oh, and, uh, sorry. Yep. Nope, there we go. Yeah. Um, so you were, you were talking about you had to hold her hand down and then you froze. Oh, uh, yeah. So there was only one nurse that was in the room at the time when I had gone back and seen this tube in her mouth. Um, and they were busy trying to do whatever they were doing. Um, and there was nobody else around and she was trying to grab the tube and pull it out of her mouth. Um, so I had to, well, I didn't have to, but I was the only person there. So I held her hands down so she didn't hurt herself. Um, and so I held her hands down. Um, uh, I don't even remember how long it was to be honest with you, but until she was fully sedated and she wasn't fighting back anymore to grab the tube. Um, I just remember her. Uh, trying to grab it and she looked at me a couple of times and was looking around the room and that was the end of that how did that make you feel all range of different emotions that none of them were happy that's for sure i'm sorry about that um now when you left the room so you were gone about half an hour phoning her lawyer and then phoning your brothers mm -hmm, correct and when you left the room, she was speaking to you. Yes, so she was. I mean, uh, she was just on the nasal, the nasal tube. That was it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you and her were having a conversation, and you basically tell her, "I'm stepping out to give the lawyer a call and and give um, your two brothers a call." Mm -hmm. And when I got back, it was too late. So whatever happened after I left. I don't know. I don't know if she agreed to it. I don't know if it was verbally, in writing, even if she agreed at all. 
Um, cause when I left the room, there was five nurses and doctors in there. So who knows what happened? Right. Um, but nobody told you that she consented. Am I right about that? That's correct. Nobody had told me that she consented. It was just something that they severely needed to do to preserve life was what I was told. Right. There was now no you had, option. You'd said to us that she was, um, kind of, she was partially sedated, but not fully sedated. Um, did that change? Did they basically then fully sedate her? Yeah, she was fully sedated up until her passing. So she was on the ventilation for a month, month and a bit. Okay. So and and I, I, want people, I want people to understand this because this is very important. So this would be now July 25th. You leave the room. You're talking, your mother's talking to you. And you leave the room on the, yeah. on the 25th. You come back and she's ventilated and she's, she's sedated, but she's still trying to pull the tubes out. But then they sedate her more and she's not trying to pull tubes out anymore. Am I right? Yes. They had under, they had her under um, sedation and paralytics. Um, sedation of, for whatever reason. Um, I, mean, I don't know all about it. So, but I understand putting her, I understand sedating her to put the tube in. That makes sense to me. After that, I don't know. Uh, but the paralytics was apparently to help with uh, um, ventilation. Because what the ventilation does, um, they the, what they the, a direct quote was, we have full control of her breathing, is what they had told me afterwards. When I started asking questions about what this was and what that was. And they said the paralytics was, uh, they were happy that they had full control over her breathing. And that was the point of it. Right. So July 25th, um, shortly after you return, they sedate her to the point where she's no longer responding. Correct. Am I right about that? Yes. So she's basically just laying in her bed. She's not making eye contact. She's not trying to talk. She's, she's basically drugged out yes you use the word sedated but she's she's unconscious yes and they keep her in that state until she dies a almost exactly a month later on august 23rd yes so they never take her out of sedation so that she can interact with you ever again no i had acquired about that um and uh, I'd inquired about that, but they had said that with the concentration of oxygen that the ventilation system was giving her to keep her vitals up in, in the good numbers, uh, that number severely needed to come down. Uh, she ranged anywhere between 80% oxygen concentration to 100 um, all the time. I think it came down to 75 once maybe, uh, but they wanted that number to be for that oxygen concentration mix to be much lower uh, before they took her out of sedation because um, it could uh, um, it could put her in harm's way apparently if uh, they had woken her up during that process at that high concentration. So that's what they told you. That's what they told me. Maybe so not in exactly many words, but basically that's it. it it's just interesting. I I'd shared with you that. My mother-in-law was intubated three times, and, and both my wife and I spent a lot of time with her in the ICU. Mm -hmm. And all three times, 
they would sedate her for the intubation process because apparently it's it ex extremely traumatic. And then, you know, it takes you a little while to get in. You used to have a tube in your throat, so you can't talk and you can't eat. But they would unsedate her, so you couldn't talk, but you'd you'd visit with her all day, basically passing the notepad back and forth and, and writing out your conversation. But the mm -hmm. person, you know, she was there, she was cogent, she was alert, she was interacting, you know, using her sign language and writing notes to the doctors and, and staff and all of that. And and we, we went through weeks and weeks of that. So it's just interesting to me because um, you're talking to your mother one minute and half an hour later, she's intubated and never conscious again for an entire month and then she dies. That's correct. What, what was that like for you? Because you would have been visiting her every day. Which part where she passed? No, no, when she was sedated and couldn't interact oh. with you anymore. Oh, um, there was, I don't know, it was high emotions. There was so much going on. Um, I was trying to keep people updated and tell them what's going on and, you know, trying to tell them that everything's going to be okay. This is part of the process apparently is what they tell me and dealing with the doctors and dealing with different things and such. Um, it was, to be honest with you, Sean, I really don't know how I felt other than just mad all the time, mad. Cause it's, it's, um, I don't understand or I didn't understand a lot of anything that they told me as they were telling me things. So it's, what's real, what's not real is, you know, do we need to do this? Do we not need to do it? So there was a lot of frustrations on my end. Um, but having to keep calm and keep going because, uh, she needed me, whether she was conscious or not, she had needed me, but especially when she was put on ventilation, then I was the only person there asking the questions. Cause God only knows what they could have done if I hadn't been there, you know, if no family members had been. So there was just mad a lot of the time be honest with you because it was at a frustration at a frustration because i didn't understand anything that was going on and i just wanted my mother to live i don't think there was anything wrong with that though you know no no um for the this whole event because you, you you really witnessed quite um quite an event like from a, an outsider looking at your mother um I think she became more to people than just somebody that was trying to get a transplant for herself. She basically became a, a spokesperson for other people that had been moved off transplant lists. So she kind of she became a voice for people that didn't have a voice. And did you get that impression too? Oh yes, you could tell just the way she spoke. It was, um, it was never about her as much as it was. Uh, she, of course, she talked about her own story and her own experiences and stuff, but it wasn't, it was never just about always her. It was about the other people, you know, anybody else that might've been in the same situation, you know, like the clip that you played at the start. Um, I forget the exact quote that she gave, but it was, we just, we just want to live, just help us live or whatever she might've said, but uh, it was never always just about her. Yeah, no, and, and just, you know, speaking from, you know, somebody watching, um, she, I think it's fair to say that she has inspired a, a large number of people in just both her tenacity to just keep carrying on and mm -hmm. 
kind of the clarity of her voice. And um, I remember saying at, at the end of her testimony um, that something like every Canadian watching, I think, is ashamed or feels ashamed. Um, because I have to say that I, I experienced shame for my country in listening to your mother's story. I felt ashamed to be a Canadian. And I think everyone else watching felt the same way. And what a precious gift um, that she gave us by just basically shining a light on to what was happening and how mm. we're treating extremely vulnerable people. And, and I expect that you're very proud of your mother. Oh, extremely proud. Um, there's a lot of people who are, I'm sure we're going through the same situation or roughly the same situation as her. Um, and uh, we're too afraid to speak out or didn't have the connections. And however this started for her, I'm not exactly sure, but who whoever got the ball rolling and found mom or who mom found, you know, to get her to where she got up to with the NCI and speaking with you folks, um, um, it was good. It was, it's, uh, it was good to have somebody surface above water to be able to talk about it, who was terrified uh, for their life in one hand, but on the other hand, uh, wanting to fight and not just, just uh, take it and lay back and be like, okay, thank you. Yeah. Did she, hmm. did, did she speak at all about how she felt about testifying at the NCI? Not to me, no. Okay. Um, I remember. Uh, I remember when uh, uh, she did talk about you, though. Actually, I remember her talking about you. She always told me how uh, she goes. Uh, he's a lovely, lovely man, and she goes, "I could never thank him enough." But other than that, no, uh, I don't recall. Well, I, I can tell you, it was an honor. Um, because before we put somebody on the stand, we, you know, well, as you know, even for this, we had a long interview today just to, to find out, you know, what had happened and, and figure out mm -hmm. what we should talk about. But same with your mother. And I, and I have to um, tell you, Darcy, it was just a pleasure, pleasure to speak to your mother and, and uh, an honor to call her as a witness and hear her story. And it wasn't in that clip. And I, I really urge everyone watching this to go and watch Sheila's testimony at the end you'll hear a whole bunch of clapping and what happened is is the entire room and it was a packed room everyone stood up and gave your mother a standing ovation they were just so moved and so inspired by what she had shared and uh, yeah and I, I think we just all feel very honored and I I know that the entire NCI that like the entire group was was deeply grieved and moved um, so know that uh, your mother left a big impression upon all of us, and I think everyone watching um, is just interested in, in her and, and you and the family. And, and on behalf of the NCI, we, we wish all of you well, and if there's anything you can do or we can do for you, um, we'll do it. So um, we're very sorry for your loss. Appreciate that. Is there any... Um, is it okay if I touch on a couple more things during my experience oh, at the hospital? Actually, please do, because the reason we're here is, is you know, to, sh to find out from you what happened and what your thoughts were. So please do. Mm. So after, after ventilation, um, 
I guess before I start that, I guess um, we have our we have our doubts with the transplant team and their decisions, of course. Um, but I do want to say that the ICU nurses. I don't want anybody to have any disdain for them. Those people were lovely people and they seemed to um, really, really care about the patients. Um, I know there was four to be specific that I can recall um, that were very good with mom before and after ventilation. Um, specifically one lady, she actually, I remember her getting upset because uh, she had, I forget which medication it was now. But she, she, she had seen the numbers of whatever they were giving her, and I remember her bringing it up to whoever it was above her that uh, they were giving her too much for her little body, and that they should turn it down. And I remember them saying that they would take a look at the numbers. So there was, um, you can feel however you feel about doctors and hospitals and whatever, but the ICU nurses specifically is all I can test to. There is um, great people. I never met a bad one. Not that I thought was any malicious in any way. They always, uh, I remember combing their, combing mom's hair while she was uh, on ventilation. They were combing her hair. They were bathing her. You know, they were trying to make her look pretty with um, whatever. But yeah, they were, they were really good to her. So don't have any disdain against those folks. Those are great folks doing a good job. Um, but uh, what was the other thing? Uh, I remember when... When we had first got into the hospital, before ventilation took place, they had put a tube down her neck, um, side of her neck, sorry, uh, for a thing called ECMO, um, which is, uh, they said she was a perfect candidate for ECMO. That's a quote. Um, and... Uh, that was to happen if i'm not how it works is if ventilation was no longer sustainable then ecmo could be come in to help sustain life to bridge to a transplant is what they said to me um and then shortly after ventilation or just after yeah just after ventilation um she was no longer a ecmo candidate something to do with antibodies Apparently, antibodies from people I've talked to was not a issue, but to them it was. So they uh, they took her off uh, a can as a candidate for ECMO. So that was a lot of that took a lot of my time trying to figure that out while I was there. Um, then another problem I had run into with them was trying to talk about different things that we could or they could try, sorry, to help save my mother's life, um, was to, they wanted a very specific size of organ. And it was very specific what they wanted, um, which makes sense in some ways. But then I later found out that um, they didn't need one specific type. They just needed a matching blood type. But for the size and everything and the antibodies um that could be that could surgically be done um in a different way they didn't they had a, they had more wiggle room a fair bit more wiggle room 
as long as the blood type was the match, they could pretty much work with everything else um, from my understanding. But they um, they didn't seem to have time for me to talk about that or they rebutted and just kind of buffed me off when I tried to talk to them about it. And then when I had told them where I got the information from, because that person is no longer practicing, um, they they more or less told me that his opinion was void because he didn't hold a license anymore. But yet this is his area of expertise for umpteen years. And, this and is what I, he did. my understanding is this person worked on the transplant team with these people for years and years and years. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So, so basically a person that worked with them on the transplant team as a senior doctor who happened to just retire, that's why they don't have their license. Yes. Basically sharing information with you, they're discounting now because well, the person doesn't have a license anymore. Yes. And for anybody listening that says I broke court order, I actually didn't because this person knew of my mother's case um, before the gag order went. And of course, because he knows all the doctors and everything about it, there was nothing I could tell him that would break court orders. So just want to clarify that for some people. But yes, yeah, so this doctor, I had talked to him and um, uh, anything that we talked about um, that I could take back to try to talk to the transplant team about, nothing. Um, they kept uh, engaging with me on a regular basis every couple of days, sometimes every day, depended on when uh, I was there and if they were busy or not. Um, and then up to a give or take a week and a half before her passing, um, nothing. Nobody was there. Nobody was ever around. Nobody called. Um, it was just kind of like they were checking up on her to see how she was doing and then never came by after that. Uh, the next time I heard from anybody from the transplant team was when I got a phone call. Um, I had missed it and it was a voicemail telling me um, or sending their uh, condolences for my mother's passing. Um, I never called them back, to be honest. But, uh, and at the end of the day, my understanding is, is your mother's kidneys failed. Yes. Yeah, she, that was, that was uh, definitely a rough morning. They called me at 1130. Uh, no, sorry. So they called me the night before saying that that could be her last night. So we rushed down to the hospital, or I knew, sorry. And um, uh, I rushed down to the hospital, make phone calls, and turned out by the morning, everything, she kind of stabilized, everything went back to basically where it was before. Everything was looking really good. Um, high oxygen concentration, uh, but otherwise stable, from what her mach the machines were saying anyways. Um, then the next night was 11.30 at night, on the 23rd, they had called again and I had went in with a family friend and uh, um, they said, this could be, this is it. If she's going to go, it's going to be tonight because they said, this is, it's bad. She's, and so, of course, I go in um, and kind of expecting the same thing as the night before to happen, but at the same time, being realistic that it could happen. But that's when everything kind of went bad. So up until... Up till three o'clock, it was just kind of worrying, touch and go, um, and then just gradually watching her numbers decline, 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 decline. Um, 
and that's when we knew things were getting real. Um, uh, then around 35 after three or so, um, that's where that was pretty much the end. Um, her kidneys had failed. She was bloating. Uh, um, and the doctors had come in to talk to me and were preparing me for what was about to happen. And, uh, um, and then, um, talked about, um, resuscitation, um, and that, um, just to kind of be aware that they might have to come in with a whole bunch of people to resuscitate, uh, cause it's getting close to that time where something's about to happen. And that did happen. Uh, and the team came in to resuscitate and I had made the call to not resuscitate because that's what it was shortly after that or before that story that I found out that her kidneys had failed and that she was bloating. So what was the point of resuscitation for a couple of reasons? Because now she, her kidneys are gone. She's no longer a transplant candidate because now she needs more than what she originally needed and we weren't getting those. Um, so because of her kidneys, uh, she, she would have been no good for transplantation after that. And also that there was nothing more that they could really do. So I had made the call to not resuscitate. And um, I got to stay in the room the entire time. Nobody had asked me to leave. Um, I remember just stepping out uh, to give them room so I wasn't in their way. Um, and the doctor had thanked me or the uh, the the head resident, I think he was at the time, at that time in the morning, um, he had thanked me that it was the right decision to make because uh, there was nothing they could do. Um, and shortly after that, I had asked them about, um, I had asked them if, uh, if they knew or not whether she could uh, feel or, you know, if she was suffering or she could feel or know anything that was going on. And he said, uh, with the amount of sedation paralytics that she's on, uh, there was nothing. She wouldn't feel, she wouldn't be feeling anything right now. Um, and that's when I had made the decision to pull the plug. Because um, there was nothing more they could do. And her numbers were so low anyways. Um, why prolong it? Uh, and then I had stayed with her uh, until quarter after four um, where they had basically stopped any any medications going into her and just had her on the ventilator and I stayed with her right until there was no more brain activity and she was officially considered deceased um, and it was weird though too because even when they came in and said there was no more brain activity uh, because she was still on the ventilator she was still breathing it looked like so but there was no lights on um, I think that was probably the hardest part of the whole thing was just making those calls um, you know uh, and then uh, 
Darcy, sure appreciate you sharing with us. Sorry, it was graphic, but no, and I appreciate it. It's, it's emotional, and I'm sorry that that you're going through this difficult time. Um, it needs to be said. Uh, I feel because I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but. I don't want anybody to go through that, man. That's hard. I don't want anybody to go through that. I don't want anybody to die, but I don't want anybody to have to go through that. It's not something that anybody should have to go through because of stupid vaccination. There's everything wrong with that. somebody might not the next person might not you know i'm not saying i'm strong but i'm holding myself together good you know moving on but because i had so i had some time to be able to prepare for this but nothing will prepare you for it truly but uh nobody should have to go through that And I think everybody just needs to, not for my mom's sake, but for your own family member's sake, if there's anybody else going through this, you don't want to be where I was or where I am because we need to, we need to do something, anything, because this is wrong on every level possible. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hey, sorry about that. Um, anything no. else? No, no, don't be sorry. It's actually, um, I think what you just expressed was the most valuable part of this interview because you were you're sharing your deepest thoughts about why you thought that this was wrong and in a very real and human way um, making that alive to us so Darcy I'm, we're honored that you shared with us this way and, and we we do know that you're going through a difficult time and, um I guess off topic off of that uh something else I'd like to say is anybody that you folks included the NCI um, anybody that did an interview to help share her story, the NCI, um, listening to her testimony and anybody that she had met um, during her time, uh, the end, uh, I just want to thank everybody on behalf of the family. Um, I really helped keep her focused on what she wanted to do and um made her laugh and smile and meet so many people. She was, she talked, she talked to me with so many people. I can't even remember their names, all of them, but uh, 
uh, she met so many good people. And I had talked to a few of them too to let them know that she had passed. Everybody who did anything in any capacity that touched my mother before the end, uh, I just want to thank you all very much. It meant a lot to her, so it means a lot to me. Oh. I don't know how I can ever thank you, anybody, for that, but I just want to say thank you. Um, it meant a lot. It's interesting that it's the people that we meet along the way in our journey that are the most important. Yeah, and, um, that's true. And actually, it's just it's been a pleasure for Teresa and I to get to know you, Darcy. So, no, oh, it's been a pleasure to meet you. I'm glad I got to meet you, good folks. Yeah, no, no, and we're we're not finished. <laughs> so, we know that, uh, that yeah. you're going to be part of our lives. So, um, yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. I, you know, before the um, before the trucker convoy, I, um, you know, I was just really despairing, and they just gave me hope because they were standing up when the rest of us weren't standing up. And your mother, no, that's right. Your mother did the same thing. She did everything she could to stand up and bring attention to this. And, um, you know, basically to be the voice of a whole bunch of people that were subject to similar decisions. And, um, and we know there are others. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm actually trusting that everything happens for a reason and that, that what your mom's done and, and what you sharing the story with us and, and the experience from the family and your experience, you know, will help move this forward. Because I'd like to think that what we're doing We'll bring about positive change going forward because we know things are broken. And we know. I that. hope so. We know things. I hope so. Better. Yeah. Nobody should. I mean, we all pass away eventually, but nobody should have to pass because of something as ridiculous as this. Yeah. So. So I think we're gonna we're gonna end this round table and again Darcy on behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry just sincerely thank you for participating with us today thank you for having me thank you thank you everybody for watching thank you so much for listening to this broadcast of the National Citizens Inquiry it's so important to get the testimonies of Canadians out there, so please share on all your channels and invite your friends and family to listen in. As always, you can head over to nationalcitizensinquiry.ca to sign our petition and find out more on how you can take personal responsibility. From the National Citizens Inquiry, thank you. The world is watching.